Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. My guest today has dedicated her career to the highest levels of public office and still holds very significant global influence. She was the 37th Prime Minister of New Zealand and the second woman to hold that position. Since politics, she's been on the global stage, including in a top job at the United Nations and recently co-chairing the investigation into the coronavirus outbreak. A global leader in sustainable development and gender equality. Helen Clark, welcome to a podcast of one's own. Thank you very much. Now, you're someone who would normally be jet setting all around the world. What's life like for you at the moment? It's like an enforced sabbatical, except that you have to work through the night to accommodate the European and Northern American time zones. But actually, start to wonder whether you'd bother getting on a plane again. It, it's, it's really rather nice not being permanently travelling, shuffling through airports, uh, jet lag. So it's got an upside as well as a downside. So you do think it'll permanently change how you work? Presumably some travel coming back, but maybe a bit of a mix and match between virtual and travelling? I think a bit of a mix and match because it, it's clear that a lot can be done online. And particularly given the concern about the climate crisis, people are questioning more and more whether they should be hopping on a plane to go the other side of the world for a you know, one-day or two-day meeting. So I, I think it will carry on online to a certain extent. But I do find that with boards that I chair, for example, over time you start to lose a bit of connection when the only interaction is online. So ideally you'd meet at least once a year in person, but I think virtual can do a lot. Yeah, I agree with you. Now, of the things that you've been working on, and this did require you to get on a few planes, you, with Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, led an independent review into the pandemic response. And, of course, Ellen's name would be familiar to many because she was the first woman to lead a nation in Africa, being president of Liberia. Now, before this pandemic hit, many of us would have watched romanticised movies about outbreaks of new epidemics, and they all seem to involve, you know, very good-looking people from the World Health Organisation running around in hazmat suits. Is it like that? What's it really like? And what was the investigation like? Well, firstly, I, I never got on a plane at all. It was all done online. All the collaboration between uh, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf and, and me and our secretariat and then our commissioners, we recruited uh, virtually and we met online over a period of uh, quite a number of months. 
and we did all the interviews and outreach and roundtables and consultations uh, virtually as well. So, of course, it would have been nice to have got everyone together properly in Geneva, but it just wasn't to be. Travel to and from New Zealand, like travel to and from Australia, is rather difficult at the moment. Nonetheless, I think we we produced a, a credible report. Look, I had been at UNDP at the time of the Ebola epidemic in West Africa, and it was widely agreed that WHO fumbled that for many, many months and and for a range of reasons. And there was quite a big self-examination after that and changes were made at the WHO. And and thank heavens they were because their emergency program was certainly better prepared than it would have been otherwise. But what we found as a, a panel was that there really is no reason objectively why a virus should move from being a localized outbreak to a global pandemic if everybody played their part and if the WHO was empowered to do what it would like to do. That requires full cooperation from all member states from start to finish. And we do observe there's a number of points in January where time was lost because information wasn't made available. WHO has no power to require that it visit a site or get information it can only try to persuade. That was a holdup. The international declaration of a public health emergency of international concern was late coming. However, having noted that January was a lost month, February was a chronically lost month where the international alert was out there and no one did much. Well, very few states did much. They kind of thought, well, it'll be like SARS, it's not coming here, or Zika or Ebola, like the dog that didn't bark. Well, this one eventually barked. And by the time Italy was in crisis, I think countries had got the message that this was pretty serious, but the genie was out of the bottle. And and then all sorts of other factors uh, intervened. Populism has been disastrous for the pandemic, and that's accounted for the, you know, the, the runaway disaster. In, in the United States and, and still the significant anti-vaccination sentiment. And if we fast forward to where we are now, look, vaccination is such a critical tool for helping countries move on from this. But if you combine the anti-vaxxer sentiment with uh, the fact that the distribution of vaccines has been so inequitable, we can't see our way out of this pandemic at the moment. And the more it rages unchecked in parts of the world, the more likelihood there is more challenging variants, which could be more lethal, more transmissible than the Delta variant is, and vaccines could be less effective. So we have a really wicked problem on our hands here. Our panel commented on both what needed to be done immediately with respect to vaccines and using all possible public health interventions apart from vaccines too, and the WHO elaborating a clear strategy and timeline, which it now has, But then we made a lot of recommendations for the future of new legal instruments, new oversight council, dedicated financing mechanism, a global public goods platform in the future for the the goods and commodities that you need to fight a pandemic, and empowering the WHO. It's not a small agenda. We've set out a big agenda, and we're we're still pursuing it uh, and pursuing it in New York with the General Assembly. And with all of that, do you think we will be better prepared for next time? I am sure that if all of the things in your and Ellen's report were done, we would be much better prepared. But your observation about populism, 
this isn't an easy age to go to the United Nations General Assembly in New York or indeed any other multilateral meeting and get agreement. Do you think we'll manage to clear that hurdle and nations around the world will buy into a better system? I often use the parallel with Chernobyl, which which was such a terrible nuclear safety shock, so bad that even in the dying days of the, the Cold War, when relations between the United States and Russia were very, very bad, Two new conventions were negotiated within five months. The IAEA got more powers and the nuclear powers began sharing more information than ever before. Now, here we are with a global pandemic with far wider reach than the tragedy at Chernobyl. We're now told that maybe if the World Health Assembly agrees to begin negotiations on a new legal instrument in November when it has a special session, Maybe in May 2023, there would be something to sign off. I mean, it's not speed of lightning, is it? If a new legal instrument to empower the WHO and clarify the responsibilities of member states and the norms and ethics around all of this is needed, it's needed yesterday, not not in May 23. So, look, speed of lightning isn't happening. But nonetheless, when Ellen Johnson Sirleaf and I took the report to New York, I took it virtually, uh, Ellen in person, and we briefed the General Assembly, we got a very serious and constructive response. And we're continuing those discussions because we think that pandemic preparedness and response is needing a special session of the UN and a political declaration negotiated around it. And when member states negotiate, you know, they may pick up our ideas, they may mix and match with those of other panels, and there are other panels, but the chances are we would get momentum towards reforms in the architecture and the financing mechanisms and so on, which would take us further ahead than we are now, the, the way the world works on, on these issues. The WHO has had tremendous value in the past out of the special sessions on non-communicable diseases, on universal health coverage, on antimicrobial resistance. And WHO would certainly welcome a political declaration around this. Uh, So that's what we're playing for. Look, at at the moment, it's vaccines, vaccines, vaccines. That's what everyone's, you know, rich and poor countries are very uh, concerned with. But, you know, even if we get over the vaccine hurdle, that doesn't solve the problem for next time. We need systemic changes to be better prepared next time. Well, I'm sure everybody listening would say all strength to your arm as you go around that incredibly important work. Now, I'm going to move topic and take you back to the very beginning and talk about your life and the influences on you. You grew up on a farm as the eldest of four girls. Now, the stereotypes would tell us that eldest children are typically thought of as the conscientious, responsible leaders in the family. Is that how it worked out for you? And what were your formative years like? Look, look, first children often do take that role. And and isn't it interesting that of New Zealand's three women prime ministers, we're all the oldest child and we're the oldest child in all girl families. So I think you, you you need a bit of luck in life to, to supplement, you know, talent in a conducive environment. And I think my luck in life was to have no brothers because being brought up on a farm in the 1950s in New Zealand, if I'd had brothers, without doubt, they would have been the preferred helpers on the farm. 
looking around the society that I grew up in, you know, girls are easily consigned. The more domestic chores around the home with mum, well, the boys get out and have fun with dad. Well, we got out and had fun with dad. You know, we did everything. It never occurred to me that girls couldn't do everything because we did. And I think that sort of foundation of realising that there were no barriers to what you could do, in my case, were extremely important. I then went on to an all-girls high school. And, you know, look, I support co-education, but we have this paradox, don't we, where actually all-girls schools are pretty good for girls. Co-eds are better for boys. (laughs) But I certainly benefited from not having to you know, be cast into all the issues that you're cast into as a teenager with co-education. I went to a girls' boarding school, and I'm very grateful for that. And then I went to university where the girls were there in equal numbers with the boys by the, the time I landed there in the late 1960s. So, you know, life went along pretty well for me, and it wasn't until I started to move up ladders then that it became very apparent that you were one of the few women on the teaching staff at the university. And then you put your hand up for Parliament and people look at you and think, oh, a woman. <laughs> I was only the second woman MP ever elected for Auckland, which is usually about a quarter of our population. And the first one had been 40 years before and only lasted for two years. So it, it seems ridiculous, but even in the early 1980s, you were breaking through glass ceilings to, to be elected in a New Zealand constituency. When I was elected in 1981, the numbers of women MPs doubled from four to eight out of 92. We were a small, beleaguered minority. So thank heavens I had that good start in life with a father who, you know, invested everything he could and a mother investing everything she could into her daughters. And that all-girls school experience, the meritocratic experience at, at the university before I hit these really steel barriers. And where did that passion for Labour politics come from? What made you want to get involved in the Labour Party as young as you did? I mean, you were actively involved at university, so this is clearly a spark that uh, went into a flame very early in your life. Well, it was mainly prompted by foreign policy when I was a student because the big issues on campus were the foreign policy issues. There was the anti-apartheid movement. There was a year where I sat on the committee of Halt All Racist Tours, which was uh, opposing the the 1981 tour, even even earlier tours, actually probably rugby tours from South Africa in the early, early 70s. It was the time of protesting against the French nuclear testing program in the South Pacific. It was a time of protesting against the Vietnam War, which New Zealand, like Australia, had foolishly gone into. Uh, So what I found as a student, and I came from a home where Dad had been quite active in the National Party, the Conservative Party, but in the family history, there was much more mixture. You know, my grandmother had voted Labour in the Great Depression. There was just quite a, a range of political tendencies. And so when I went to university and I'm you know, looking at the issues and what I'm feeling as a young person, uh, the Labour Party had positions which lined up with mine. And that, that made for a few difficult years of argument uh, at home. Of course, by the time I came to be a cabinet minister, Dad was a passionate supporter of mine and of the Labour Party. So in the end, I converted him, I guess. But I came in on the issues and they were foreign policy issues. Then when I of course, put up my hand to run for parliament. You're not going to be 
featuring those when you're seeking selection and election for a low, low middle income electorate, the issues of housing, uh, social welfare benefits, uh, access to the health system, and excellent compensation and what's happening at the local schools. So I pivoted a lot reflecting on the fact that I'd been a very fortunate child with a first class public education all the way through primary, secondary and in university education. And I wanted every young person to have the kind of you know, security and opportunity that I've had growing up. And so you are in Parliament, you're young for a parliamentarian, you're only 31, I think, when you're elected, one of uh, you know very few numbers of women in the Parliament. Can you talk to us about how you then went about your parliamentary career? You obviously went up and up and up the hierarchy until you were ultimately Prime Minister. But if you had been sort of the subject of sidelong glances, a woman wants to go into Parliament, what was it like to take those next career steps? Well, it, it was quite a tough environment. What a surprise. The Labour Party was very faction-ridden. <laughs> and I, I think I, I ended up backing the losing side. The first you know, six years, really, I was pretty much on the, on the outer. I spent six years as a backbencher, three opposition, three as a government backbencher, chaired the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. They were difficult years. It wasn't really a very receptive place for uh, for young women. And I often used to joke that there were three forms of recreation in Parliament, none of which I could identify with. One exercised the arm muscles, which... Uh, operated at the snooker table. Another exercised the finger muscles that dealt out the, the poker cards. And the third exercised the arm muscle, muscles that lifted a glass of beer in the Bellamy's bar. Now, none of that I identified with. So in a sense, I wasn't clubbable. You know, I, I didn't fit into to that, as, by the way, most of the women MPs didn't. You know, we, we, we were different and we were quite serious and task-focused. So it takes a while to wage your way through that. But I eventually became a minister and then eventually a more senior minister and then even deputy prime minister all in the course of the three years that I was in government at that time. Even then, I didn't feel that I was blocked in my ministerial duties or deputy prime ministerial duties as a, as a woman. But when we went into opposition, and eventually I contested for the top job, that's when all hell broke loose really on the, on the gender stereotypes because suddenly people are looking at you and thinking, oh, so she's leader of the opposition, she wants to be prime minister. Well, we don't like this about her, that about her, the other thing. You know, They don't like the way you look, don't like the way your hair's cut, they don't like the way you dress, they don't like your voice, they don't like anything about you. And it's all gender stereotypes. And the stereotypes that if you're strong, and how on earth would you even get to shooting range of these positions if you weren't strong? <laughs> well, you're tough. So tough isn't nice for women. It's not the stereotype. So, yeah, it was really hard going. And I took on the leader of the opposition job at the end of 1993. Those three years were really quite disastrous. I bottomed out as preferred prime minister at, at 2%. I faced sort of constant rumbles of party room coups, which I stared down, as you must, and then went into the election. I think we were polling 22%, which was pathetic, and pulled it up to 28 So there was a kind of Lazarus-type revival, and with the introduction of proportional representation, if all the cards had crumbled, 
the right way, I could have ended up as Prime Minister. But that depended on Winston Peters, who'd come out of the National Party background and at that time went with his old colleagues and put the National Party back in office. Now, I also think that was a lucky break of my life because it would have been a really tough coalition. And in the second three years, because Labour had the sense that you know maybe this could come right, we ended up in a much stronger position to form a government. And then I was able to form three successive governments and stay for nine years. So things sometimes work out better than you might expect from having an election loss as leader of the opposition. Across the nine years, did you feel like the gender stereotyping diminished over time? I mean, my experience was actually gendered insults, the stereotyping got worse. Obviously, you're in government, you make decisions, some people like them, some people don't. In my case, there was obviously some major decisions around putting a price on carbon, which were very controversial. And I thought the gender stereotyping got worse as time went on. But in your case, being in government as Prime Minister for such a long period of time, did it ultimately fall away? Did people just get used to you, the way you looked, the way you talked, and that was not the issue anymore, or was there always still a bit of it? Well, there was another lucky break, and that was that at the end of 1997, the National Party, seeing Labour coming up in the polls and getting worried, decided to dump their male leader, and they brought in Jenny Shipley as Prime Minister. And suddenly, it was normal, right? (laughs) There was a woman Prime Minister, not elected, but a woman Prime Minister and a woman leader of the opposition. So whoever won the election, you were going to have a woman as Prime Minister. It normalised it. I should say I'm very grateful to Jenny Shipley for pushing her predecessor aside because it actually made it a lot easier. And actually, she would probably never have been considered for the job if I hadn't been there as the female leader of the opposition who had to be headed off. So that, that was a lucky break. And in a sense then, the gender stereotypes fell away for a while because what were they going to do? So neither of us were suitable for public office, which would have been ridiculous. But what I did find was towards the end of my time as Prime Minister, they started to come back again. So oppositions are always looking for ways to attack a government. And you always, tragically, it's a bit like football, isn't it? The the opposing team will always try to take out the strongest player. And you see the vicious little kicks and tackles and, and things that they hope the ref doesn't see. It's a bit the same in politics. So go after the strongest person. And if you can bring them down, you bring the whole the whole show down. So what they started to focus on it was, again, Here's a childless woman who's telling you how to live your life and sort of invoking almost a stereotype of, you know, it's like having your mother-in-law around. You know, she's always nagging you. I put the government's support behind a private member's bill to, in effect, criminalise the assault of children in the home. There was always a waiver in our Crimes Act for parental correction of a child. We got rid of it with this private member's bill, but that really let a lot of stereotypes loose about you know who is this woman who's you know, telling you how to bring up your children and then when we began you know sort of stepping up the climate action campaigns obviously some of the things you do is is try to regulate hot water uh, systems and light bulbs go to led bulbs etc and this became you know nanny state they're telling you what light bulb to use you know they're telling you 
<laughs> it was pathetic. Of course, everybody now has energy-efficient light bulbs, but you know, we're talking 13 or more years ago when it was, was novel. It did reassert itself, particularly around that 2007-8 period, the last two years, and sort of, for me, culminated in the reports I had from parts of New Zealand where the, you know, the pickup trucks drove around with Ditch the Bitch stickers on them. It was a bit, a bit sick, but that's, that's the way it went. Nine years is about the level of tolerance of a you know, democratic electorate for a government in New Zealand. So it's, it's a hard thing to pull off a fourth term. But the gender stereotypes did come back in as a, as a big knocking act. Is a researcher who does work with the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at the Australian National University, so I'm very proud that we're able to have an institute in Australia now as well as at King's College London. Her name is Blair Williams, and she's done an analysis of New Zealand coverage and Australian coverage on gender questions, leadership questions, political leadership. And her research points to stark differences in the print media landscapes, with New Zealand being better. Now, Jacinda Ardern has said to me in the past, she spoke about this when we interviewed her for the book on women and leadership that I wrote with uh, my friend Ngozi Okonjiri-Wheeler. She said she thought the Australian media was much worse on gender questions. And if she was an Australian rather than a Kiwi, she might have asked herself some very deep questions about whether or not to go into politics, given that kind of landscape. What's your observations on that? Well, we we don't have the Murdoch press here now, (laughs) which is kind of helpful, I guess. Generally, the print media has been a, a fairish platform, shall we say, from a gender perspective. Not always. You know, there's some unfortunate headlining. I think the real problem is shock jock radio. You know, the Alan Joneses of the world, they've got their equivalents in, in, in New Zealand. Of course, I watched, the, you know, how, how you were treated and it was pretty shocking, really. I mean, for all the nasty things I had said and done about me, I don't think it ever got to that level of nastiness and and, and derision. So may speak to some cultural differences between the two countries. You described the fact that Jenny Shipley was the first female Prime Minister of New Zealand as a lucky break in your career. What do you think it means for Jacinda Ardern that there was Jenny and then there was you for such a long period of time. I mean, New Zealand is one of only two nations on earth to have three female prime ministers. Does it get easier? Is it different? Oh, yes. And I think, you know, for young women of Jacinda's age growing up, they grew up with these role models. You know, young women across the political spectrum could see women doing these jobs. I think it was incredibly important. It used to be joked towards the end of my time as PM that boys would say to their mothers, you know, can a boy ever become Prime Minister? <laughs> because they, they just didn't know anything else. And, and, of course, the answer is yes, they can. But uh, for you know, rather more than half of the last 22, 23 years or so, New Zealand's had women prime ministers. And that's, look, all the time I get messages unsolicited on social media saying, you know, you're such a role model for me. You made me believe I could, you know, I could do things that I would never have had the confidence to do. So I think having women there, having them visible is just so important and encouraging more women to step up and take on these kinds of roles. 
When you finished in New Zealand politics, you then went on to the world stage. You became the first woman to lead the United Nations Development Program. Uh, You did that from 2009 to 2017. And that job actually is the third highest ranked position within the United Nations. You then ran for Secretary General of the United Nations, unfortunately unsuccessfully, and there's even a documentary film, My Year with Helen, made about your campaign for that incredible global role. What was different or the same about the way that gender and leadership issues played out in the UN compared with the time you'd spent in New Zealand? Well, firstly, I think UNDP was certainly ready for a, a woman leader. They'd never had a woman leader, and, and I was succeeded by a man, so I remained the, the one and only. But I, I think people were very, very receptive to it, and I always felt you know, well, well supported by the team at, at UNDP from the global through the regional to the, to the local levels. But the broader UN environment was, was a bit different. Ban Ki-moon, the Secretary-General, was very supportive of promoting women to the highest ranks. And obviously, I was a beneficiary of that, as were a number of others. But I used to go twice a year to what was called the Secretary General's Chief Executive's Board of the International or UN System. Now, that board was made up of the the heads of all the multilateral agencies in the system. And many of those, Barnes certainly didn't do the appointments. He did the appointments for the what are called the funds and programs like UNDP, UNICEF, UNFPA, UN Women, WFP, and so on. But there's so many others from ICAO to the International Maritime Organization to the ILO to the WHO to this, that, and the other, where it's done by the member states. And there was hardly a woman among, <laughs> among those others. So, again, it was a very, very male-dominated forum to, to be in. And yes, you did find still some quite patriarchal attitudes among some of the senior male peers at that undersecretary general level. I remember one, an older man, probably older than I was, ringing me up one day to pick a bone with me about something. And he said, now look here, young lady. I said, hang on a minute. (laughs) I was then probably at least 60, you know. But I was just a girl, you know. <laughs> I mean, it'd sort of be funny if it wasn't a bit tragic, really. So there was always that. And then when the Secretary General contest came around, there was a Friends of a, a Woman SG campaign among the member states that evaporated pretty fast because people like to you know, get on side with the women in the end. But civil society, of course, absolutely thought it was time for a woman. A lot of member states did. But you, you just couldn't get off the ground. A majority of the candidates were women. A great majority of the candidates were women. And all as well qualified and in many cases better qualified than, than the male candidates on average. But we were all of a generation where we'd had to fight like hell to get to where we'd got to, to be within shooting range of these positions. And that fell, put us back into that trap I referred to earlier, that if you're strong, you're tough and you're a bit threatening. You know? Now, if you then combine that, with the fact that the Security Council basically chooses the Secretary General. And within the Security Council, some kind of consensus brokered among the permanent members picks the Secretary General. Now, there was only one country among the permanent five, and that was Britain, that said they wanted a strong Secretary General. 
Secretary General implies a spectrum. They didn't want someone at the general end. Most of them prefer someone more at the secretary end. None of the women were secretaries. The women were strong. And so I think the gender stereotype played in there again because we weren't the kinds of candidates who in the position would pull our punches. I think almost to a person, the women who were running would have been quite forceful. And I don't think they could cope with that, couldn't cope with strong women. So, you know, there, there we are. But look, I am kind of optimistic that after that denouement, shall we call it, next time the job comes up, and it hasn't really come up again because generally a secretary general will get two terms. There's only one, one example where someone sought re-election and couldn't get it. I think the turn will go to Latin America and the Caribbean, and I'd be very surprised if a woman secretary general doesn't come out of that. There's plenty of you know, very competent women, and we can, we can all, all think of some of the most likely candidates for that. So I think forcing the issue was important. Almost all the women stayed in to the bitter end. Uh, they didn't withdraw and make it easy for them just to select a man and say, oh, the woman couldn't cut the competition. So I'm, I'm optimistic that it'll happen next time. I hope you're right. Absolutely. Wouldn't it be wonderful to see a woman in that job? Now I'm going to move to the concluding questions for the podcast. I always ask my guest to reflect on a fact. The fact for you is the following. The World Economic Forum's Global Gender Gap Index for 2021 has New Zealand ranked at number four. Yay, New Zealand. And Australia all the way down at 50. Your reaction? Well, I'm really sad for Australia. New Zealand and Australia are like cousins, right? We feel we know each other well. You know, you just don't like to see Australia down the bottom of that uh, of that list. Well, I mean, there's plenty below 50, I suppose, but 50 is no place for Australia, which you know has a tradition of being an egalitarian na- nation, but but somehow it's not extending to women across the spectrum of of, of spheres of activity. So. Yeah, some some thinking to do. Yeah, I just feel a bit a bit sad, and I I know so many strong Australian women who who just won't stand for it and will keep fighting, and that's all I can advise: keep fighting. You know, your boat will come in. Great advice. What's the worst misogyny you've had to face? I think the worst misogyny was in my time as leader of the opposition where it was just felt that I was never going to get there. People didn't like me, that I was too this, too that, too the other. I was never going to cut it. But it, it all came back to gender stereotypes, that in order to get up to these shooting positions, as, as it were, to the top job, you have to be very resilient. You have to have nerves of steel. You have, you have to be strong. You have to be able to sustain you know, a, a lot of knocks. And when you have people who don't really see women in these jobs, they hate all that about you. They hate it that you won't give in, uh, that you won't go away, that you're just inconvenient. So that that was a really, really tough period. I remember one Easter, I'd gone away somewhere on Thursday night, I'd turn on the TV, and the political editor of Television New Zealand is opining, she'll be gone by Christmas. <laughs> well, to me, that's like a challenge, right? Who's going to be proved wrong here? She was. I got nine years as Prime Minister. But it took six years to get there. Great that that was your reaction to the challenge. Fantastic. Things to think about as uh, many women face challenges in their lives about that spirit of determination. If you had all of the power in the world, just for a moment, what would you change for women? If you could change one thing, what would it be? That no child, female child, is ever forced into a marriage again. 
you know, I just feel so, so shattered by the, the stories of, and having gone to Afghanistan two and a half years ago and, and met families where 12-year-old girls were up for marriage to a second husband to pay the rent for a year. You know, you look at these little girls, and I remember one little girl we met where there had been an intervention from community leaders, and the mother, in the end, didn't go through with the transaction. And I said to the mother, what made you pull back? And she said, it was when they said to me, how did you feel when this was done to you as a child? And she started crying as she told me the story. And then when I asked the little girl, I said, well, how did you feel when this discussion was going on about you? And she kind of put her head down and she said, oh, I don't really understand these things about marriage. And I said, now, tell me how you really felt. And the interpreter didn't want to interpret. And I said, look, please tell me what she's saying. And what she said to me was, I wanted to throw myself down the well. That's shattering. And yet little girls are pushed into that day in, day out. And you know, one of the saddest stories I've seen, of many sad stories since the Taliban takeover, is a, is a story in the Times of, of London about a father with who can't pay any bills, has lost his job, and is working on an arrangement to pawn his four-year-old daughter, who will go and live in another man's house and be the second wife when she reaches puberty. I mean, it's devastating. So that's the first thing I'd change if I had ultimate power, so that you know every girl has the chance to finish her education, make her own decisions about her life, have access to sexual and reproductive health services, and not just be you know, a pawn for others. A very good vision. Now, against our reflective conversation, I'm going to give you a quote from Virginia Woolf. Virginia says, I can only note that the past is beautiful because one never realises an emotion at the time. It expands later, and thus we don't have complete emotions about the present, only about the past. Helen Clark says, Oh, I think, I think that's right. And we live in an age where everything's pressure, 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 pressure on the present. But if you can sit and reflect and think back, we have achieved a lot of good things, There's a lot of things we haven't been able to advance. But let's not despair about the state of the world, grim as it often seems. There are ways through the, the problems and challenges. And maybe after another 10, 20 years of effort, we'll look back and say, you know, we did make a difference there. Absolutely. Thank you so much. What a great conversation. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of One's Own with Julia Gillard from the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. If you want to learn more about our work, visit the Global Institute for Women's Leadership website and sign up to our updates. This podcast has been produced by Connie Blafari and James Miller with Kings Online with editing by Nick Hilton. If you liked what you've been listening to, we'd love it if you could rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider. We're always looking for feedback and it really helps people to learn more about our work. And please join us next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own.